0: Welcome back to the Go Dig a Hole podcast. I recently had the honor of speaking at Portland State University's first Thursday talk. It's a really great public archaeology event hosted by their anthropology department. It draws a pretty large crowd on the first Thursday of every month. The people who attend range from undergrads and grad students, other professors at PSU, researchers from other universities in the region, professional archaeologists, and interested members of the public. I got to coalesce a lot of the ideas I've been working through for other projects and retool a presentation I gave a few months ago to go a little deeper into the subject. So this episode is some of that talk from Portland State. In a nutshell, I explore the utility of digital media in archaeology and give some examples of positive applications of digital media in archaeology. Stay tuned to the end to hear how your archaeological field data can also be presented as digital knowledge. In this talk, as I have in some of the recent episodes of the Go Dig a Hole podcast, I continue the theme of serving the public good by being more public-facing as archaeologists. Big shout-outs to the wonderful people on Archaeology Twitter who have been sources of support and inspiration for this work. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it five stars and review it on whatever platform you listen to podcasts on. It helps other people like you find these episodes. You can also support Go Dig a Hole on Patreon. You go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. How I got into archaeology was kind of by accident, oddly enough. I started off as an engineer at North Carolina State University. Uh, thought that was what I wanted to do, but very quickly learned that uh, I really sucked at it. I had none of the skill sets to be a good engineer, and so I dropped out of school for a year. And in that year, I worked as a wilderness backpacking guide. And as a wilderness backpacking guide, I, f- I fell back on that because I knew that's where my strengths were. I knew that's where I could thrive and kind of apply my talents and my perspectives and my experience. <clears throat> So after a while, I ended up going back to school, and I went to Appalachian State, and I was just kind of taking whatever classes interested me. I would surf the course catalog, and they ended up being archaeology classes. And so after a while, uh, I had uh, this advisor that uh, Dr. Butler knows, Tom White, uh, he really pushed me along, and he said, you know, you're going to kind of reach this sink or swim moment where you have to take a field school. If you're gonna go any further in this, you have to take a field school. So I took a field school and I loved it. It was down in Belize working on Maya sites and now here I am today. Um, So that's how I got into archeology. span Now I'm gonna pass this around. Um, Just try not to hit buttons. and (laughs) Try not to fidget with it too much because it'll make weird noises. Um, But if you don't wanna share anything, that's totally fine, just pass it along. Um, You don't have to. And if you feel like you're not someone who practices archaeology, like in the field, you can share like why you why you're here today in this room. Um, so I think this will be neat because we have a, a little archaeological community here that uh, we can learn a little bit about each other with. And it's pretty sensitive, so you don't have to like talk into it. You can just kind of talk at it. Well,
1: my parents were real interested in archaeology and. I just sort of followed along. I've had a lifelong interest in archaeology. I've taken field schools and uh, joined the Oregon Archaeological Society. And I take as many classes as I can in my life at PSU. I started out in geology. And then I went into engineering, uh, I actually succeeded in engineering, <laughs> ended up retiring from that a year and a half ago. Um, and since then, I've been trying to figure out what I wanted to do. But part of what I really love is um, Uh, bones and digging and history. So archaeology kind of combines all of that, so I've just been taking some classes and having a lot of fun.
0: So I think I became an archaeologist as a freshman at the University of Georgia. I was taking an anthropology course and a geology course. I loved history, and I realized that archaeology really brought all of that together. So we are, you know, it's people in the ground, basically.
1: Um, I come from a legal family, and so I started going in that direction because everybody was pushing me that way, and when, um, I, when we went on a family vacation to Ireland, we went to all these different museums and places like Noth and Newgrange, and I kept asking the tour guides questions they couldn't answer, and not, I wasn't trying to be obnoxious, but it was just where my interests lied, and I kept, I'd go to all these different places and kept getting told that I needed to talk to the archaeologists, so kind of ended up switching majors and been happy ever since. <laughs> Um I guess my interest in archaeology probably started from a young age. I grew up on property that was homesteaded my by my great grandparents in Alaska, so if I'd go out in the woods um, near my house, I'd find pieces of barbed wire or other kinds of things that have been left behind by them. So I guess I've kind of always had my gaze focused on the past
0: uh I'm not so much into archaeology as far as I'm the vehicle of archaeology being that I'm Chris's brother and I drove him here. <laughs> but uh I'm actually a photographer and I have a BS in uh environmental science so I'm loosely related to this field somehow but I do find it very interesting and I live with him so I hear all about it.
1: Um, I got into it when I was in high school. I had an anthropology class in high school, and so it went from cultural, biological, and archeology, span and so that's just kind of what kicked it off. I thought that I wanted to be a primatologist, and I went to a primatology field school, and after two months of hanging out in the jungle waiting for monkeys to come to me, I decided that that was not what I wanted to do. (laughs) Um, But I did really like being in the field, and I was really interested in people, and that kind of led me to archeology span eventually. I'd always been really interested in history, but when I went to college, I decided I wanted to be a theater major, and then decided that um, my I wasn't using my brain enough at all, so I remember talking to my mom and was like, you know those people who do really cool things in Egypt? I wish that was a job. And she was like, so that is a job? That's why they do it? Um, <laughs> and so the next day, I changed all of my classes to anthropology, archaeology courses, and... I've been in it ever since.
0: Uh,
1: I got into archaeology mostly probably because of the stereotypical Indiana Jones movies. Um, But being a kid raised on documentaries, I also found out that it was kind of boring and uh, not punching Nazis. And I (laughs) stuck with it when I got to
0: to college and been there ever since. As a freshman here at Portland State, I I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and then I took intro to archaeology and, and realized the value of interpreting past life ways and um, how scientific and fun archaeology is. That's how I got into it. Uh, growing up, I was always interested in like, learning about history, um, and I, but I didn't really know what I wanted to study once I graduated high school and was going into college, so I went to community college in my hometown, um, and I was just declared anthropology major because I had learned a little bit about it, and I knew that's something I was interested in, um, and I was looking through the course catalog, And over the summer, it was weird because it was a community college, but they were offering uh, an archaeology field school. And I was like, that sounds sweet, but I have to take intro to archaeology. So I took that to take the field school. Um, So being like just barely one year into college, getting a field school, um, just kind of cemented it that that's, you know, what I'm super interested in. So for me, it just started as a little boy interested in swords and bows and stone tools and always thought it was cool going to museums looking at it one year high school I took a trip Arizona just happened to be there day trip to Montezuma Castle that was one of the coolest places I've ever been just brought my attention to North American archaeology and so I've never wanted to I've known I want to do archaeology since a little kid.
1: Uh, archaeology was always something that I was interested in from a very young age. I come from a laborer family, and it was highly discouraged, and I was told that it wasn't a real job, there's only a couple of them, you know, it's not, you know, something extremely elite and not open to everybody. And then I went to community college and took an anth class because it fit my schedule and had an amazing professor. And she took classes, she took her graduate thesis with Dr. Bronner down at Oregon State and got me into the field school down there and I've been doing it ever since. I also got interested in archeology span at Portland Community College with a very hands-on instructor who would bring a bunch of obsidian to class and have a flint napping class and take us to the zoo to watch primates and I just really fell in love with it there and she was the first person to really tell me that archaeology was a real job and you could have a pretty successful career even just off of a bachelor's degree and I've been in love with it since then. Um, I've been interested since I was really little. My family was a military family. We would go all over the country. Um, While my mom was in the reserve as a communications director for her unit, she took me to various places after she was done with her uh, assignments. So we would go to Mount Vernon, uh, George Washington's mansion. We went to Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's mansions. And I was seven at the time. I was just lucky to be there at the time when archaeologists were excavating the uh, trash pits behind George Washington's kitchens and I actually got to see them dig their square holes and everything, and yes, I grew up on Indiana Jones too. I blame Indy for half the work I'm doing right now, but um, once I got to college level, I was like, you know, paleontology looks interesting, but I think I want to work with humans. So I went into um, some anthropology classes at San Jose State in California, Uh, got my BA, um, had a wonderful mentor down there who introduced me to the Ohlone Indians, And um, got me set up with some work. Um, Did field school up here in uh, Central Washington University at Ellensburg. And um, here I am looking for a job. Thank you,
0: everyone. I feel like I I know all of you in the room uh, a lot better. And I feel like we know our little archaeological community and where we're all coming from. That's pretty awesome. Um, So uh, to circle back to... Where digital media comes to archaeology, um, <clears throat> a lot of the research that I've been doing on this is borrowed from marketing and communications, and they're kind of the people who have set um, the schemes for like what these things are and how people behave in them and so yeah uh, you know other archaeologists are working on this too, and we've all had to adapt and develop this to fit archaeology so there's still a lot more work to do. But the entry point is kind of a brief history of the internet. So um, starting off with Web 2.0, in the mid-90s, there was this massive marketing firm called O'Reilly Media. And they they coined the term Web 2.0 as a marketing gimmick. And what they were uh, doing with it was to signal the shift from static web pages, like those lovely old GeoCities sites that uh, were on the early days of the internet, to blogs with comment sections, and that was Essentially like the extent of technology that allowed people to interact with content that was online Not very elaborate not very uh, Sophisticated but then uh, moving to web 3.0. There's a lot of debate over what exactly it is uh, when it started and where it came from but the general consensus is it's marking yet another shift from interactive media online to expansive user-generated content online. So the best example we have, or the most familiar example we have at least, is social media. So you've got Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, And so uh, borrowing these things from marketing and communications to archeology span requires us, like I said, to do some some, uh, finessing. But if we look at how technology socializes with the way we act and behave as archaeologists and the way we do our research and the way we teach it and the way we present it to the public, we can see how it sits in the archaeological, archaeological toolkit just a- along with like our theory and method and our tools and technology. Um, and so uh, to break it down for the, the digital media that archaeologists can use, uh, kind of the starting point is social media, blogs, and podcasts. And there are strengths and weaknesses with all of them. Um, With social media, there's um, kind of expansive networks, but um, it's dependent on the network factors. So um, with Facebook and and Twitter, for example, and really Instagram too, um, there's algorithms that drive the way people see content. So um, I might not see everything that any of you post because the algorithm decided that I don't need to see it. and they also weight uh, how much you have paid to present your content to someone. So that's one of those things that, while that's a very productive source of research for marketing and communications, um, that's a source of worry for archeologists because we often worry about creeping neoliberalism in our research and stuff like that. Uh, For blogs, I'll go into more detail with that in a little bit, but they're evolving adaptive documents. And uh, they have a lot of potential there with podcasts. uh, It's very easily consumed media, uh, and it has a much larger network potential than any of the other media. Um, But if you are a teacher or just an archaeologist or anybody considering how you're going to present anything on social media, you have to consider some various factors for kind of safety and responsibility of what you're doing with it. So there are a lot of uh, benefits to a public account on social media, but there's also reasons to be private. So the benefits are the benefits to a public account are anybody can find it, but that's also uh, the drawback to it is anybody can find it. Um, you also have to worry about cultural sensitivity. That's something we have to worry about no matter what we're doing with archaeology, if it's on uh, digital media or... Anything else? So, I think a good example is uh, like a human skull. It's a very striking, very compelling image. And you know, like when we think of archaeology, we often think of somebody holding a skull, like maybe picking it up out of the dirt or something like that. But there are a lot of cultures around the world that are deeply offended by images of human remains. So, like for example, if you're working with Native American tribes, uh, you don't want to show images of. Na- of uh, human remains, period, but certainly not native remains because uh, that could be their ancestor and you could be disrespecting the descendant community. And that ties into stewardship of cultural resources. So one of the common problems that we see on uh, digital media uh, being used in public archaeology is uh, geotagging pictures. Um, And then you also have to consider professional liability. So anybody can get fired for posting things. Um, especially state and federal employees. They're, um, they have to be very careful about what they post. And then um, if you are a teacher or an archaeologist uh, facing the public and you are encouraging a group of people to go online and engage, you have to consider that there are trolls online and you could be exposing this group of people to abuse. So that's, those are just things to consider um, in using digital media. <clears throat> Now, um, the best way to think about using digital media for archeology span is to kind of work backwards. So to think about what your desired outcomes and goals are if you're addressing the public and just walk it back from there. And by doing that, you can, you can uh, kind of map out the strengths and weaknesses of, of your whole plan. You have to consider uh, the targets for your engagement and who has an incentive to connect with you. So uh, in the research I've, I've been doing on this um, and talking to other archaeologists, uh, if you post something online and you, you use all the hashtags that you can possibly use to be clever to, to get things out there, uh, it's very, very unlikely to actually reach the public, uh, which is kind of disappointing. Um, and so the lesson there is you have to take archaeology to where people actually live. You have to make it meaningful and relevant to them in some sort of a way. So <clears throat> in some sort of a way that they can consume in their day-to-day life. Um, but one of the strengths of social media is that it has a lot of collaborative potential. So like across the board, any discipline, not just archeology, span there's um, a lot of engagement with other people like you who are doing archeology, who are doing research, whatever your subject is, chances are someone's gonna be looking for exactly that and they're gonna come find you. And then that gives you chances to collaborate on your research, on presentations, on stuff like that. Um, So I like to talk about Twitter uh, when I talk about social media for archeology. span I think it has the most potential um, because you can use hashtags to kind of break the algorithm and just search for something relevant. Um, and Archeology span Twitter is a great community of inclusive archaeologists that are very collaborative and very supportive, um, and this is one such person. Uh, Dr. Kate Bittner is a professor at McEwen University in Canada, and she uses hashtags to, um, present things to her class for class discussion. So in this case, she's presenting, uh, someone's opinion on the Winter Olympics, uh, Uh, on performative gender uh, for her gender studies class. Here's another example of another researcher at uh, McEwen University, Dr. Sarah Sarah Shulist, um, who also uses a hashtag um, for a Native American studies course and in this case she's using it to present a recent current event of the murder of an indigenous person in Canada and the way um, the language Around that is framing it against the indigenous person, <clears throat> and then here's a student. Uh, this student, Briall, was on uh, the Go Dig a Hole podcast recently and talked a lot about um, using digital media for archaeology. So that was that was pretty fun. Uh, but this person has used um, hashtags to bridge two classes and is offering a uh, an opinion on gender iconography uh, relating to bathrooms. So all of that, the, the use of hashtags expands the classroom, as I said, and, and just kind of brings um, these discussions like, I'm able to follow this. I, I can see like, what they're doing, and I actually have learned a good bit about gender studies and, and like, gender performance just by following what these people are, are sharing and talking about. Um, but beyond the classroom, uh, like I had mentioned at the beginning, uh, using Twitter for archaeological conferences is an interesting thing. Uh, because it lets people who are not in attendance or just in a different room in the conference uh, kind of follow along and see what the discussion is kind of on the sidelines. Because um, at conferences, a lot of times the the most productive discussions are actually happening kind of on the sidelines. Um, but there's an interesting uh, conference for archaeology called Patsy, or the Public Archaeology Twitter Conference, that's organized... Uh, in a different way that there's no physical location for it. It's all on Twitter. So uh, Lorna Richardson and um, I'm blanking on his name, uh, James Dixon, uh, they put out a a call for papers just like any normal uh, academic conference and uh, they put out a program and a schedule and everybody who's accepted to present in this conference has to follow their little schedule. And so uh, using like the TweetDeck program, you you can schedule your tweets out Um, that way you can do it all in advance but you basically have a a paper or a presentation that you present and it all happens within your your set time your set guideline and it's interesting because as you're following these hashtags um, you can use more hashtags you can also tag people Um, it expands it so that uh, anybody who like can't be sitting there watching Twitter all day Can actually follow it like whenever they uh, search for it and there's a lot of discussion around all of the little tweets that happen on these things so it's kind of a neat interactive way to have a uh, an archaeological conference Um, but one of the things about doing this for using Twitter and using hashtags and using digital media as a whole is that it democratizes the uh, archaeological experience so in this case with the public archaeology Twitter conference what I mean by democratizing is it overcomes um, the financial barriers of like conference registration or society dues, travel costs, um, and it's also accessible. It's it's more accessible for people with disabilities or chronic illnesses, or for people of marginalized groups who otherwise um, don't feel the same kind of access to um, more traditional archaeological conferences or venues um, so it's a it's a neat way to get um, research and experiences and voices out there that don't really make it through uh, another clever use of hashtags for archaeology and Twitter is Archaeology Writers Month um, and it's neat to see how this happens or they call it ArcRIMo. it's a spin-off of National Novel Writers Month or NaNo-Rymo. Um the way it works is uh, every November uh, on the first of November um, <clears throat> people who want to do this they just kind of signal some kind of intent to write something it can be a, uh, a title or a subject or just say I want to do this thing I'll figure it out along the way and what they use this hashtag for is to build accountability and motivation and support and collaboration and so as they're uh, going along the way the goal is, at the end of November, you have a finished product. You have a paper that's ready to be submitted to a peer-reviewed journal or whatever you want. Maybe it's a book chapter. Uh, and More often than not, these people do get the job done through accountability and support. So it's just a, a neat way to see people kind of using it for productive academic purposes. Um, so shifting away from social media to blogging, um, the way... The way it can serve archaeology in in more productive ways is, uh, blogs are kind of living documents, and uh, depending on who's involved, you can have um, you know a really well written blog post and also really constructive comments that serve as revision notes, and so the blogger can keep revision notes in the post, and so that way. It speeds up the peer review process and it also makes it open so it's not hidden behind a, a paywall or anything like that um, unless for whatever reason the blog's behind a paywall but you really shouldn't do that um, <clears throat> and like I said depending on who's writing it and and who's uh, offering the revisions you can have uh, the same kind of level of research quality uh, that you would find in more traditional uh, peer-reviewed publications uh, and then so podcasting is the other the other part of uh, digital media um, again thank you all for for podcasting with me that was fun um, if you want to join me ever uh, I podcast from the Stream PDX uh, Airstream trailer in northeast Portland mm-hmm. uh, I'm always game to have guests uh, if you want to share your work or come on as, as a, a, a co-host whatever I'm always happy to have people join me um, so you can sit in that Airstream with me. <clears throat> but, um, oh, I also feel bad because I'm out of Go Dig a Hole stickers, and I'm getting the logo uh, redesigned by a graphic designer, so um, I don't have stickers for you now, but they're going to look way better next time. <laughs> um, so uh, podcasts are, are uh, they're an interesting animal because they have a much bigger network potential they have a much bigger reach so if I were to tell you uh, the go dig a hole podcast each month hits about around five to eight thousand people versus the um, you know I have a handful of of peer-reviewed articles that are out there I would be lucky if maybe 50 people read those all together in my lifetime Um, so I'm not advocating that any of these digital media replace traditional uh Research or traditional publication, um, I think what uh, what I would be suggesting here is that they can be used to augment traditional archaeological research and publication and engagement so um it's a much bigger reach than blogging or or uh, social media, but all of them have to fit together like we use anything else in the archaeological toolkit like you can't use ground penetrating radar for everything um, <clears throat> But, um, where was I gonna go with this? Oh, I can't talk about social media without sharing a picture of a dog. <laughs> this is uh, my brother's dog. Uh, she's, a girl. <laughs> she's a good helper. Um, so, we've talked about blogging, social media, and podcasts. Your field data can also be digital media in uh, archeology. span <clears throat> And so it takes a little finessing to get there, but this is kind of where, where Codify comes in. I'll try not to shamelessly plug it too much. Um, so if, if you're using traditional ways of recording data in the field uh, by like writing notes on paper and stuff like that, that's still valuable. Um, it's durable, it's lasting, it's comfortable, um, and it socializes well with what you're doing. So you know how what you're going to write in the field on your piece of paper is going to inform the report that you write at the very end or the way you're going to handle artifacts at the end, stuff like that. And uh, some of the barriers to adopting technology to replace or augment your note taking in the fields are these things that we call friction points. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, maybe later. But if it interrupts your workflow, then that's what I mean by socializing. So that means it socializes very poorly. If it helps your workflow, then it's socializing well. And so uh, say, for example, you use paper to write your notes in the field. You're writing down uh, what you're excavating in your excavation units, and then you have to digitize that. So maybe you transcribe it into some kind of digital form. It's that's not really efficient or elegant, but it is good because it gives you a second backup of that. So you've just created some kind of data security just by doing that. Um, Now, if you're using a tablet or something to take your notes in the field and you still have to transcribe it to something else to make it usable or meaningful or enter it into your database to manipulate that data for your research, that's what we call paper on glass because you have not replaced the actual workflow of writing on paper. So you may as well just keep writing on paper if that's what you're doing. Um, True Paperless has some kind of a back-end database to it. It has some kind of thing uh, in the information architecture that shortens that distance from the field to your finished product, the paper you're going to write or the public you're going to engage with. And so um, as we're going along through that, though, not all paper is bad. There's good paper. There's, there's things like this that you can hand out and give to people where they are um, and give them useful information. There's also um, archival standards to worry about. So there are federal archival standards that dictate that archaeological data, the reports, the site forms, so on and so forth, have to be printed on archival quality paper and stored in a proper way. And that's great because we don't know what's going to happen to all of these digital formats. Um, there's this thing called bit BitRot, uh, external hard drives go corrupt, servers crash. Um, and if you're storing things in the cloud, um, that's not archival. You want to think about the cloud as someone else's computer that you are renting. Um, you wouldn't put a lot of your personal things on someone else's computer, and you really shouldn't do that with the archaeology stuff either. Um, so you've got to think about data security along the way and you've also got to think about data durability so um, there are there are best practices for using uh, like external hard drives like rotating them you want to have a three to one backup for everything and you want to rotate it make sure that that data is fresh to avoid bit rot um, but also just archive things on archival quality paper and keep it, keep it safe um, all of this digital media Um, relating back to everything, uh, social media, blogging, podcasts, and using our field data as digital media. If it's public facing, then it's serving the public good. If it is efficient and it's shortening that distance between field to finished product, then you're also building accountability and oversight along the way to where people can kind of check on you. And uh, if you're making it efficient, and effective and public facing and serving the public good, then you are outmaneuvering and outpacing the current political environment where you have um, lawmakers who are really hell bent on this term called streamlining. And streamlining as they see it is deregulation. And that is not streamlining. That's that's cutting corners. That's, that's not cutting edge, it's cutting corners. So, um, <clears throat> i f- I fully believe that even though things do look dire on the archaeological landscape right now in the, in the political climate, I firmly believe that we can outpace lawmakers. we can make archaeology better, and we can make it serve everybody better. Um, this is the shameless plug for <laughs> codify uh you're the first people to see this. This is an ad we're going to run next week um, but <clears throat> it's fun that's what we're that's what we're working on. Uh, and doing all those things. And uh, when I I talk about serving the public good, Codify is doing uh, something really fun with the Denver Museum of Nature and Science where uh, they were working with us and they said, we want to be able to pull in data from from the archeologists, the paleontologists, the zoologists, and the collections and curation. And we want to be able to flag data in the back end database. Like certain fields will always be available to the public so they can search it, they can do their own research but what's fun is they said the reason why is because they want fourth graders to be able to do their science projects with it. So uh, that's what really got us like, turned on to that, and we've been really pushing that hard everywhere. Um, so when I talk about friction, I'm just talking about failures, um, little, little breakdowns. Um, so like, if you're using paperless for one part of your work, but you're using paper for another, um, then when you have to transcribe it, it's going to slow you down, or and that point where you slow down, uh, maybe you're just not going to do it. I've done that a few times, where like I had to write down a photo log, and I was like, yeah, I can keep it all here faster than I can I can write it down. So that's that's friction. That was a breakdown in the system. Um, mm. If you have uh, uh, bad cases of friction, are things like a server crashing, and if all of your stuff is stored in the cloud, then when the server crashes, it is gone. Um and then there's all the other um kind of barriers to entry and barriers to success. But those are things to work around. So uh the last question is where will digital media be in 50 years? I ask this because everything we have right now is going to be an artifact in 50 years. And that's interesting to think about. Um we have a lot of good ideas about where media is going but uh, nobody really knows so uh, the best we can do is try to make a better future for archaeology and for everybody so to wrap it all up um, digital media is really useful for archaeology there's a lot of strength but there's no one-size-fits-all solution it takes a lot of finessing to find the right approach some tools are more useful than others Um, To use it for teaching or for facing the public, uh, it requires a lot of thought to integrate everything together and to adapt kind of existing technologies and existing ways of behaving in those technologies to be meaningful to anybody. Um, But there's a lot of uh, incentives to do it. Um, There's a lot of collaborative potential and um, the public thinks it's really cool and it democratizes the field. It makes it more accessible to everyone. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, you can email me, you can tweet at me. Uh, I'd love to have any of you on the podcast and that's all I've got for you. Thanks for listening to the go to go whole podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please consider uh, supporting it on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com forward slash go dig a hole. All of your contributions are incredibly appreciated. And uh, I've already been able to do a lot of amazing things with your support. So thanks again. And please uh, share this with any of your friends, colleagues, classmates, students, teachers, whatever. Uh, You can also find me online. I'm very online. the blog is go dig a You can find me on all the social media platforms at Go Dig